I have seen it in improv. Um, I have actually worked with students in improvisation who just need that 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 little guy in our, that we all have in our heads that's telling us we're doing it wrong, just to turn him off. Uh, and I feel like what you've just mentioned with puppetry in terms of what we could do with improv and puppetry is really brilliant because I definitely see that as a, a way forward. I know that puppetry can be therapeutic in so many ways and it is used in therapy, you know, in various cases. I don't really want to go into that because I don't have enough knowledge myself uh, to be able to comment on it. I definitely see the potential of it and I think if it can be used to allow communication from students who may have autism spectrum disorder or um, other other uh, intellectual disabilities, uh, I definitely think that it can be used as a way of turning off whatever that brings on that stutter. I don't see why that's not possible. G'day everyone, thanks for joining us for episode 40 of People With A Passion. This is the last episode in series two. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Still subscribe to the channel. We will be coming back with some more episodes down the track. But if you haven't caught up with the other episodes, make sure you go through our catalogue and check those out as well. Subscribe and hit the notification bell for when we do do some live streams later in the year. If you love puppets, then today's episode is for you. We've got Pete Davidson from One Orange Sock, who's an educator and a puppeteer, and he also has the podcast of the same name. So if you're interested in education and how you can use puppets to get your message across, then by all means, check this episode out. I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Applaudable.net. Thanks, Pete, for being here and joining us on People with a Passion. I had a ventriloquist recently from the US on the show, and he's also a puppet maker. But I thought, to be fair, I would make sure that, um, understanding that it is an industry and there are a lot of people passionate here in Australia, that it'd be only fair that I'd reach out to you. You have oneorangesock.com, um, which is a, a, an organisation that actually promotes puppetry and you also have a podcast so i thought it would be only fair to give an australian voice to the uh, puppet making and what's behind it but thanks for being here i hope everything's well thank you yeah thanks for having me it's lovely to be here it's lovely to talk as an interviewee for a change on a podcast as opposed to being the interviewer yeah in a really cool journey yeah, so what I'd like to know is we've, we'll go through a little bit of your history, but we'll start with the puppets because that's what you're here for. So yeah. what got you into puppet making and puppetry? I have been performing uh, probably since I was seven years old, but uh, it was uh, through university that I was with a musical society that um, put on a production of Avenue Q. Uh, and in Avenue Q, what happens is that it's it's basically an adult version of Sesame Street. Uh, so you have a series of cast of puppets and they are on stage with the performer uh, and they are going through the hard, the hard times of adulthood and all the things that you were taught as a kid about, you know, your dreams can come through and everything's going to be okay uh, really isn't the case. And so in Avenue Q, I was given this opportunity to perform as the lead role of Princeton, the main character who is a 20-something-year-old uh, puppet who is moving to this new neighbourhood, uh, has to get a job, has just come out of an Ivy League school in the US and realises that life is actually a lot harder and he needs to find his purpose. And in the show, I was gifted this beautiful $12,000 insured puppet that was beautifully made uh, here in Melbourne uh, by a company. Uh, and there's a couple of touring different um, sets of puppets that tour around. And I'd never worked with puppets before then, um, but I, it, it, when I was presented with this puppet, there's something that happens. You're kind of elicited with everything you remember about your childhood is thrown in front of you when you've got this puppet that is perfectly like what you would find on Sesame Street in front of you. And just the opportunity to perform like a Muppet-style character, it just got me really excited. Um, there's a lot of techni technique with a puppet that I didn't know I had to learn as an actor. So there's this whole idea of synchronicity, uh, a concept of breath, making sure the puppet's always upright. It's quite a physical job and I, uh, and I really gravitated towards that challenge. So in doing Avenue Q, I, a year later, I was itching to do something with puppetry again. And so I decided to gun the internet and just see if I can make one myself. And, uh, one of the puppets you can see behind me there, if you're watching here via YouTube, is Doc, the purple puppet. He was the first puppet I built. 
Uh, I have a design background. My degree is in design, and uh, I just decided to try and merge those two skills together in terms of performance and design. And what I realized was that puppetry is the perfect merge between my background in education where there's so much you can do with with kids in puppetry, and then there's also that design aspect, the building component of it, and then there's the performance aspect, which just kind of beautifully melds everything together. So, yeah, I then... Um, found a teacher, found a master of puppetry who knows how to build these things, made a bunch of stuff happen for myself in terms of uh, different internships or workshops I could go to. Uh, and there aren't many in Sydney. It's a very small community, as I've learned. Uh, but more and more, I've just been kind of getting into bigger forms of puppetry. And most recently, I was in Russia uh, in a fellowship with Unimar Australia. And Unimar is the Union Internationale de la Marionette. It's a French organization that has now gone international as an association of puppetry and I was able to be um, the Australian candidate to go to Russia and perform and develop a show um, in Ryazan which is about three hours south of Moscow and that experience of learning and being around other puppeteers from other language backgrounds from other forms of puppetry uh, just changed my whole life in like three weeks flat and so I decided to move to Melbourne, uh, go part-time with my teaching job and actually try and make something of developing my own company. Mm. I, I find that a lot. So that's perfect um, to have you here on People With A Passion because a lot of the time people start, you've talked about a narrative that I hear all too often that you, you had a love of puppets when you were younger, then you've stumbled into a passion and now you're turning it into potentially a business because you want to obviously do something you love and make money at the same time. Um, I do guess that you actually do like teaching as well, so it's not necessarily that the teaching, but there's a lot of teachers out there, so you're looking at this as an opportunity, I guess, to combine teaching and puppetry, which is two things you love. Would that be a good guesstimate? Yeah, I think... Uh, I came to Melbourne to teach because I can teach drama here and, and that's something that I wanted to do more and more. Uh, I taught art and design and drama all a bit too a bit too much of the stuff. But what I've noticed with puppetry in terms of education, I mean, it starts with Sesame Street, right? But there's something about the simplification of a puppet, and this is specifically Muppet-style puppets. There's something about the simplification of the face and something about the, uh, the level of cuteness that the puppet offers. Uh, that when you actually use puppets in an education setting, you get a reaction from the kids that is just wonderful. And particularly with students with autism spectrum disorder or varying levels of autism spectrum disorder, you find that it is an easier and simpler communication tool with them. So part of me still wanting to teach while I'm doing this is also because I think like there's a great opportunity for puppetry to be in the classroom. Uh, but yeah, I'm totally passionate about teaching and education. And uh, I think... Uh, it is my bread and butter, and it has been for the last five years. Puppetry in itself is, and this podcast that I'm making, is my education. It's my puppet education. And so I'm learning from every single practitioner that I speak with. Um, and what I would like to do with the company is potentially get into schools and do puppet workshops, um, which was what I was doing back in Sydney. And I think it's just a really great way to introduce an art form that I think is part of theatre. I think we forget that puppetry belongs as part of theatre, and when you say to someone, oh, I'm an actor, they go, oh, that's great. When you say to someone, I'm a puppeteer, they go, that's peculiar. Mm. And actually, it's really the same thing. You know, we're still performance um, practitioners. We just have a different mode of operating and a different mode of creating our work. And the difference is that we have an object that we are animating in front of us as opposed to animating ourselves and turning ourselves into characters. Um, the responsibility is on us as performers to make that puppet come to life as opposed to changing ourselves and i think that's the main difference if you can i'd love to see some of the puppets you have made so i'm happy for you to break and grab some of them talk through them and the inspiration behind them so that's sure. if you're happy to make a mess of those that are behind you and um we no, can talk by all means i guess so, i'll start with doc yeah but, so make uh, sure you pop your headphones out so you don't rip yeah, them out <laughs> i will all right yeah no worries Down here. Yeah, no worries. That's all fine. And, um, and I'll take Elvis. Ah, I'm going to make a mess. Watch this. Alright, let's just do three. Yeah, no worries. Oh, and I've got Mimi as well. Here we go. Alright. 
Um, all right, so... All right, so um, one of my puppets, the first one that I made is with my teacher, Catherine Hannaford. Um, Catherine is also a teacher, and what I've found about puppetry is that a lot of us are actually educators as well. Um, Doc was based off Doc from Back to the Future, the series. Okay. Um, so he's a mad scientist, and I, he's completely custom. So everything about Doc is not a pattern. It's a pattern that I've made. So he's Doc, and Doc he has a really unique shape. Um, so it's a large foam head. Everything inside him is foam with a mouth plate that is made from core flute, like your political signpost boards. Um, and then everything else is just fleece, fur, and a bit of costume, a bit of a, a formal attire. Um, raw, uh, Doc is a two-rod puppet, so you can see that both his hands here are on two sticks that are um, basically their, their coat hangers that have been wrapped in heat shrink um, plastic, and then they've been attached to uh, pieces of garden stakes that have been then wrapped with fishing line and glue gun stick to make them really secure. And they're actually embedded into his hands. So his hands have opposable fingers. So they're all wire, wire um, frames. And then I just have full movement in his neck and his mouth. And so basically when you're operating a puppet, you want to make sure that you have the same syllables with your hand as you have when you move your mouth. So, and that you're always coming back to a close. Uh, so this is Doc, and yeah, my inspiration behind him was just, uh, he was the character that I designed. He is, and he has more of a, like a really wretchedy voice, and for some reason it's American, because a lot of puppets are American. But, uh, so uh, yeah, so Doc's been in a couple of videos for occupational health and safety. Uh, he's done work a as a nursing home patient uh, for a company called Altura Education that does training videos for occupational therapists, and in one of them, he loses his shoe. Um, yeah, and so that's Doc, and I, yeah, he's my first. And I so, guess what's the inspiration? So, you say Back to the Future, but where does the first spark of an idea come from? Because you're building a character, and I spoke with this to the ventriloquist as well. Is something's inspiring that original thought around what you want to create? So, were you watching Back to the Future, or were you, or was there just? a thought process of what character could I make? What's that process prior to starting the project? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's more of an evolving process while you're making the puppet. The first thing I came up with is his head shape. Um, I'm an, I, from my design background, um, before I was into puppets, I was really into masks, and in particular, Commedia de Latte masks. <laughs> and they are quite... Gro Actually, I've got one here. Um, they are quite, you know, very... Uh, rounded, grotesque, lots of facial features, warts and stuff like that um, in them. And I wanted to create a puppet that kind of elicited that same very um, character-driven, you know, big upside-down face and, and frown. Um, and so the head shape kind of came out of that. And then from the head shape, I just, I just had, I had, a, I had a purple blank face for about 18 months before I just had the materials in front of me to make the character of Doc. And I think what I wanted to go for someone who was old and crotchety because it's so different and removed from me that it's a great contrast. Um, but the characters kind of just, yeah, they start as drawings and as you draw, you draw again and as you draw, you colour and then it just becomes a real process. But Doc took me two and a half years. So, you know, it's it's a process. Um, I, I think with all my characters, I think of the character first before I think of their story, which is probably not the right way to go about it. Uh, but Doc is going to be part of a YouTube series I'm creating called Fur in which he is a mad scientist who, in his experiments, creates a lot more different puppets that explode out of beakers, and <laughs> they're going to basically wreak havoc over him. Um, like A bit like Gremlins, yeah, sort of like a monster story. So Tilly Monster will be a part of that, the pink puppet behind me. Uh, and Hoover, who is my glove puppet. Uh, this is Hoover. So Hoover, and a lot of the puppets, I wanted to make um, a puppet in terms of style, that was similar to the Avenue Q style puppets. So a lot of the cut puppets are two rod puppets, but the puppets in Avenue Q, um, one character called Nikki in Avenue Q is a glove puppet. And it's very similar to Oscar the Grouch and to Telly Monster in, in Sesame Street. So you can actually wear his arm as a glove. And then he, he's actually a tandem puppet. So this other arm here should actually be operated by another puppeteer mm -hmm. who would work in tandem with me 
as we move across the stage or as we move above a playboard uh, to to make him come to life. So Hoover is my my carpet monster puppet. Um, he is named Hoover because he's made out of the bits and pieces from a Hoover vacuum cleaner. Uh, and he just is this furry mess. And what I love about Hoover is he has this great residual movement. Like it's what we call sympathetic movement when he moves his fur follows. And so he just gets this great expression. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you get that added expression with his hand. So in terms of building, this was just my opportunity to, to work with a different style of, of, of Henson puppet. And you can see that he's just adorable, but he can also be quite expressive. So yeah, that's Hoover. And it just, as I kind of got better in, in terms of my, my confidence with working with foam, with patterning, um, I've become more interested in, in other styles of puppetry and, uh, there's tons. There's so many styles of puppetry out there. I mean, there's Bonraku, which I, I discovered in Japan. Uh, Europe is fascinated with marionettes, as are some great practitioners in Canada and America. Uh, there's so much. And um, when I was in Russia, I created this little head um, self-portrait of myself. So this is me. And then uh, for a scholarship application, I actually created the body, which is made of... Uh, irrigation pipe and cable ties um, from a workshop I did with a practitioner called uh, Leon Hendroff in WA. And he is just basically a different form of a smaller style of puppet. Uh, He is able to, you know, be a miniature version of me and and can characterize himself through me. But it's just a really simple, you know, it's basically just a doll, you know, Mm -hmm. of sorts that you can operate with a, a ring at the back of his head. So, yeah, I've just been experimenting and experimenting, and I can, I'd still very much consider myself a student of puppetry. Uh, I think that's part of the reason I started the podcast, was because we don't have a formal institution to learn puppetry here, uh, and there aren't institutions like the O'Neill or Beyond the Sock, which are big public conventions in the US. We really have to work with people that we find in the public community around here to, to teach us, and so... Uh, I think the podcast was me really reaching out to a bunch of puppeteers and, and trying to learn more from them. Um, so, yeah, I still consider myself very much a baby builder. If you want to have a look at the next project, this is Grumble's body. Um, Grumble is going to be my largest puppet. He's going to be a full-scale walkabout puppet. Mm-hmm. Um, his head is there, the, the large chin, um, and he is a simple gardener. He is going to be my first puppet that I put in schools, um, and his whole message will be, teaching kids what comes from our, our vegetables and what, what, how we grow our own food and where food comes from. So um, this is his body. It's all made out of uh, irrigation pipe and uh, garden trellis foam. So I'm trying to keep in with the theme of gardening and mm-hmm. what we find at Bunnings. And then it's been bodied up with foam uh, to make his full body. And that will actually attach to myself. And then he'll have very similar sleeves to Hoover where his shirt will then allow my hands to go into the gardening gloves and be operated um, from me. So yeah, I'm, I'm still learning and still making new forms of puppetry and different builds. Uh, it's definitely been a passion project of mine, at least for the last five years, but I, I still think I'm definitely a student. So the passion project, it's, um, intriguing that as a grown man that you would arrive at this. And I think this is the thing when you say, you know, you're in theater, people can understand that. But when you say I'm a puppeteer or puppetry, they sort of, it takes them back to childhood and think, well, that's just child's play. That's something that grown people don't tend to do. So to say that it's part of the theatre is, is actually correct statement. Um, the, the funny thing is, is all the puppets we see as kids are brought to life by adults. So, you know, you think of Sesame Street and you think of the Muppets and you also think of um, Mr. Rogers I think it was, oh, gosh. you yeah, know, that's way back when, yeah, you know, so th- those people who have educated people along the way, and particularly kids, and something I noticed when interviewing the ventriloquist is your attention goes to the puppet when you bring life to the puppet and the person who has their hand in the puppet is almost secondary. Ventriloquist is a little bit different because there's an interaction between the two. So there's another yeah. level of art form there. And obviously the timing of when you move your lips and not, um, yeah. and the thought process and particularly the improv. But um, I, I'm guessing the same with you, even though you're clearly the person speaking, 
the improv side of things would be also huge when you're in theatre that it's not all all narrated and, and written or scripted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've kind of covered a lot there. First of all, when I think people say things about puppetry being childish, I want to draw attention to things like War Horse and huge shows that are stage spectaculars like King Kong or um, anything that Cirque du, Cirque du Soleil does. This is all puppetry. It's all animating something. Um, and I feel like when we when we try and put puppetry in a box, generally the only part of puppetry that goes in that box is what we remember from Henson's Star Puppets in the US here. And I think we just need to broaden our horizons to what puppetry actually is. It is so much more than just Sesame Street. So I think that's where I've been going in terms of learning those other styles. In terms of becoming, you know, in terms of what a ventriloquist does, it's much more of a... Uh, I know Dennis Murphy in Sydney, who is a eventual Lucas puppeteer, and he speaks about how it's a much more of a psychological adventure when you're working as a vent because you are literally switching characters while not changing your own individual face. And it's a two-hander. You're really creating a duologue, but it's just you. So what the puppeteer becomes is effectively the spirit or the soul of the puppet. You know, when, when they're embodying, when their hand is in there, you're eliciting something that is pulling focus away from your face and you then become so focused on making sure that that puppet is alive and that puppet has breath and that puppet has residual, just little tweaking movements to always keep it alive and animated and floating. It's actually quite freeing as a performer. I think a lot of acting, we're so focused on what we're doing and it's actually quite wonderful to take that attention off yourself and put that into something that's not you. And for a lot of um, people who have any kind of mental health issues, anxiety with performance or, you know, stage fright, Puppetry is a really great way to re-access stage and, and theatre craft because it, it just, it, as is mask in a lot of ways, you know, Commander of the Latte as well. Once you have something that separates you from the audience and there's something in between you, it's really freeing. And then that improv that comes in because you feel less fear uh, and by feeling less fear, you feel more at play. And when we have that state of play available to us, then we can make something magical happen. And I think why... I focus so much on the characters first rather than the story and the narrative is because once I have that character and I know it's, it's ins and outs and I know it's personality, the story comes from that. The story comes from what I know of that character. Uh, and generally that story is interacting with the audience and then you create conversations, you create dialogue and you create intrigue. And then the audience then does the work for you in terms of asking questions. Hmm. I just um, had a throwback to my younger days when I was in high school and, and I mentioned improv and you were talking about the improv and I actually did theatre sports in a team yes. that we competed against other schools and um, yeah. for two years in a row I was on the school's team that was at Levite Theatre but I just had this vision when you're talking about interaction because that was a really great experience and I could visualize a show with puppets doing the same games where the where you throw the the puppets in the deep end so maybe that's something to explore a little bit is actually people bringing in puppets instead of and playing those same games but with with puppets so it'd be like a a puppet yeah, I sports love that idea. yeah I something what of that I teach improvisation to adults um of a Wednesday evening and I absolutely see the link there yeah you know I think a lot of uh, what we do with improv is trying to let our subconscious get out of our heads and start just thinking about what's happening in the moment. And I think puppetry would be a great way to get people out of their heads because they're not focusing on themselves anymore. So yeah, that's a really good idea. Uh, I would definitely have a think about that. I really like that concept. Uh, so puppet sports. Puppet sports. <laughs> yeah, and, and let the crowd, the, the, the amazing thing with the theatre sports, because it was theatre in the round, so you had the audience all around you and mm. you'd, you would actually... Um, they would decide who won, obviously, So based on the performance. So you were always pitting the crowd against... Um, or the crowd was always being asked who won. So you, yeah. that's that engagement that you get with theatre sports that you don't tend to get with other audience. You either get your standing ovation or your normal clap, I suppose. But, yeah, the applause um, meter. Yeah, but uh, the, the, that's just a thought that popped in my head. As we were speaking, because we're talking about improv, and I thought I reckon it'd be really interesting to see a, a theatre sports style show done with puppetry. So there might be an idea around that. So, sure. so let's talk a little bit about some of the people here in Australia as well that you think are actually 
you know, master, you know, masters of this because you say you're learning, so you're learning from people. So who are those people in Australia that are seen as the leaders in in puppetry? Yeah, puppetry in Australia was really big before television. You know, we had what I've learned is that there were puppet theatres everywhere, all over Sydney, all over Melbourne, all over Brisbane, and anywhere. You know, really that you had a, a central town, you had puppet theatres. Um, when television came along, puppetry in some respects moved onto television, but in most respects, puppet theatre is all about that live interaction with the kids, and a lot of those theatres died. Um, what we all remember is, I'm sure we all remember Mr. Squiggle. Uh, and so Mr. Squiggle was designed and created, it's the creative genius of a guy named Norman Hetherington. And I've learned that he really is sort of a bit of the forefather of Australian puppetry here, but he's no longer with us. But the, one of the, um, the oldest and most probably brilliant internationally puppeteers that we have here is a guy named Richard Bradshaw. And he lives down in Sutton Forest, uh, in, well, down in Barrow, uh, really. Uh, and he he was a shadow puppeteer, so he created beautiful animations using just mm -hmm. cardboard and created these great comic gags that were seen by Jim Henson. And Jim Henson actually invited him out to the US uh, to showcase his work and then came back over here in the 80s to do a documentary on, on Richard's work. And then Richard also was credited in the first season of The Muppets. So Richard probably been our most famous puppeteer and easily our best um, shadow puppeteer. Uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful man. He's got so many stories. I had to do a two-part, two-hour, you know, block. I think we ended up recording that podcast for four hours with him because he just has such a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of experience. Um, he knows Carol Spinney, who played Big Bird. He knows Frank Oz. He knows those men of the Muppet world. Um, so he would definitely be one of the the, the, the the most important people. He was also the artistic director of the Marionette Theatre of Australia when it was in the rocks. Um, and he kind of really built up um, the, the, the roles of people who are really big in puppetry now. So Sue Wallace is another big name. She runs a company called Imaginata down in, uh, in, also down in uh, the Southern Highlands. And it is the first ever venue of Australian puppetry arts. So it is designed specifically to showcase uh, just puppeteers and their stage is designed just for puppetry. Uh, she runs a company called Sydney Puppet Theatre. Uh, and she she has just done so, so much work in terms of uh, visiting schools and bringing puppetry to, to children. And then you've got the big companies. So you've got people like um, one of the people I interviewed was Philip Miller, who I've only just recently met since I've moved to Melbourne. But he is instrumental in terms of uh, working with Creature Technologies, which was the Walking with Dinosaurs, the Spectaculars, the big puppets. You know, King Kong uh, was built by Creature Technology, and they are probably along with the Sydney company called Earth, they are the two kind of big names and as far as those sorts of sculpting animatronic stuff goes. And then in terms of theatre, you've got uh, Dead Puppet Society, I'd say, is based in Brisbane, and they are just killing it. Like, they're just making beautiful stories. And um, David Morton Payne and Nicholas Payne are a duo. They create great theatre. They did uh, Storm Boy down here in Melbourne, they uh, have just recently done work with Tim Sharp, who is an artist living with autism, in, um, to create his show called Laser Beak Man. And they laser cut their puppets, and they're based off Bonraku, Japanese star puppetry. So there's often three or four operators on one puppet. But the visual kind of theatre they create, they, they base themselves both in New York and in, in Queensland, is really excellent. Uh, I'm trying to canvas at least one different puppeteer or puppet company from every state. I'm trying to make sure that that is also, um, you know, gender equal. And I'm also trying to get First Nations um, perspectives uh, and multicultural perspectives. So I am still only halfway through my podcast, but I, I definitely think some of the bigger names I've mentioned, but I guess the other one is Kay Yasuji, who is the secretary of Unimar Australia here. And she is the puppet glue. She is the person that knows everyone and will connect everyone and, makes puppetry here a community. I think that's probably the most important person next to those guys. Um, where we see puppetry in Australia is generally in children's theatre, but I think more and more as Warhorse and The Dark Crystal on Netflix and, and all our different um, you know forms of theatre then come together and we realise that there's a lot more puppetry out there. We just don't notice it when we see it. You referred to Mr Squiggle uh, there, who a lot of children grew up with and, yeah, 
and uh, you know, we also had Humphrey B. Bear, we also had uh, Fat Cat. So they're puppets where people are actually dressing. Puppets, yeah. yeah, so they're, they're inside those um, individuals. But one of the most popular and still gets the odd gig to this day. Yeah. Um, actually, there's I'll throw off to Hey Hey It's Saturday. So Aussie Ostrich was another one, so that oh. people remember. So which yeah. was quite clever. Um, but Agro. So oh, Jamie yeah. Dunn with uh, the puppet Agro and how most children on a weekend watching their cartoons would have grown up um, with with that character, and then he went on to have a, a career of his own outside of TV. Mm. So it's it's pretty amazing to think that that you know we all do grow up with these puppets and we all are entertained by them but we don't necessarily consider the industry necessarily in in australia and how key it's been to the growth and education of all of us so mm-hmm. so it's, i agree it, with that i think also the thing that agro did for those shows is it gave him license to be cheeky where the humans in that show couldn't be you know there's only so much an adult can do but when you give that same license to a puppet it can take that joke, can take that gag so much further. And what I love about Hey Hey It's Saturday was also like Dickie Nee, who I just think is the most hilarious. Oh, Miss Summers, Miss Summers. He is literally a cap with a wig and a ball of gaffer tape. And you never saw the front of his head. So it didn't matter that he was literally operated like this in front of the, in front of the, the screen. But he had so much life and character to him and he really became such a hilarious part of that show, but he was nothing. He was gaffer tape. And so animating objects also gives us license to think, what does Dickie Nee's face look like? We all thought he had a fully fledged character. We all think that Agro has legs, but sometimes they don't. And, but our imagination is allowed to run wild with that. And I think that's why the magic of puppetry is so much what we experience as kids as well. It's because we have an expectation of what might exist beyond what we see. So, yeah. you know, I think um, when you talked about, you know, Dickie Nee not seeing his face, uh, in real life, popular TV series, um, which was, uh, was it Home Improvements with Tim the Toolman Taylor, his neighbour, you never saw his face. And I think even in the very last episode, <laughs> when they walked off onto stage, the cat, the the main person who was the neighbour, yeah, walked out with a stick. Yeah, yeah, still. So you remember that. So, so yeah. you know, this whole concept of of creating something that is is this big question mark as well around what is beyond that, and we feel that in our own minds. So it's quite clever. It's quite a, a clever approach to you know acting and character creation. Yeah, it's visual theatre. I think Australian audiences really respond to the visual. I think in Europe, they really respond to the story. They respond orally to things and, and they, they very much have a better attention span than us. But here in Australia, and I think the reason why puppetry in Australia is probably our brand of puppetry is big puppets, like the big marching, walking with dinosaurs star puppets, mm. because they are visual and they have that interaction that is super engaging really quickly. Um, and, and those sorts of gags that I think Australian audiences responded to, like the one with Dickie Nee, that that questioning of the unknown and then realizing that it doesn't matter uh, is, is, is the gag that we're looking for. And I think a lot of, if you think of the ferals too, a lot of that visual theater was the gag that is, is presented visually, not orally. Um, all you needed to see in the ferals was the violence and it was uproarious laughter, you know? So yeah, we're definitely um, an audience of Australians that definitely responds to things visually as opposed to verbally. I think, I think Dickie Nee represented the smart ass kid and yeah. and um they would they would sometimes he only had to pop his head off and he'd be hit away before he could say anything, yeah. knowing something yeah, was coming. Those bang, you know, those those arcade games where you used to yeah. hit the gerbils on the head. Yeah. So sometimes it was a case of don't even say it, <laughs> like hit, hit him away like, before he had a chance to say anything because they knew yeah. something was coming. He always got to say his piece, but but even that this concept of as soon as that head would pop up. It was there's an expectation there, and it, sometimes the gag was that he didn't even have to. <laughs> he'd try, and they just hit him away. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. But I but, think you see that now with um, Sammy Jane Randy. Uh, Randy Feltface is Heath MacIver, who's an amazing puppeteer. He's the real comedian who's used puppetry and taken it internationally. And Randy was built by Philip Miller, who is uh, Creature Technologies uh, alumni. But yeah, I mean that that same kind of comedy has been taken into the, the 2000s. I think we forget that puppetry didn't just exist in the 90s and the 80s. It was very much and is very much here today. 
So yeah, I feel, I just feel like we need to acknowledge where it is and, and acknowledge that where you said as great visual gags like Randy does, they're everywhere. So you are an educator as well. So I want to get back to the education stuff a little bit now. You sure. you see it as a as a tool that uh, can be used to help educate. Obviously on TV, we've seen it with Sesame Street. Do you think that because you want to run workshops in schools, that's probably not just workshops for kids to learn how to make it. It's, I assume, for educators to understand the value of of how they can utilize that approach to engage their students in, in learning in a, to, to create a, a different change of state for them. So it's not the normal person standing up in front of the class and just telling them to do this. Yeah, I think puppetry can be used in a number of ways. I mean, uh, the ways that it's already working, uh, it, 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 it's a really great way of, of talking about threatening or dark subjects and bringing light to them. If you think about what camp quality does, in terms of discussing cancer and leukemia um, in children with children, those puppets are incredibly important in making sure that the students feel safe and that there's a softness to an otherwise very, very difficult subject. If you think about the Healthy Harold um, puppeteer that goes around in that van and just goes school to school for a week at a time to talk to kids about drugs and alcohol, about um, healthy eating, about substance abuse, there's a reason that that the reason that that works is because Healthy Harold is non-threatening. So from that perspective, you can really get into tough stuff with kids through puppetry. It's, it provides a safe space and it provides them a level of familiarity that they're aware of. In terms of developing puppetry in the classroom, it ticks so many boxes because if you're building a puppet, making the kids operate and give a character to a puppet and then having them perform with a puppet, you've just covered six different KLAs there, you know, you, you get, you're going into design, you're going into materials, you might actually be able to take off your sustainability box by using, um, you know, trash or materials that are not uh, new. Uh, you then also get the idea of the kids um, collaborating on something or you're, you're then creating a performance outcome. So they might be characters that are made and you can have a story about that character through English. And then you're doing drama about it. So you're just it's able to really cover a lot of bases. And I think that's what I learned with puppetry. Like I learned that it, it merges my design, my education, my performance so beautifully. Why wouldn't we then translate that down to a more simplified level for students? Um, and then on top of that, it gives us access. So you might've noticed that Sesame Street has now given a representation in their puppets. There's now a character who has autism. There's now a character who does come from a family that is a foster care home. Um, and, and it allows us to see difference. Um, so with the Muppets and the monsters, the monsters are basically a way of, and I think this is very topical now, the monsters are basically a way for us to acknowledge difference, but also acknowledge similarity and sameness. And I think the way in which we teach, um, cultural awareness, um, I know that, um, Larrikin Puppet Theatre in, in Brisbane is going to create a show called Hijabi Girl, which is about seeing and acknowledging and celebrating difference it's going to be a, it's a really great way to access those sorts of stories um and so what puppetry really is in terms of educating is just a different form of, of storytelling that can introduce kids to a form of performance that they're already familiar with but also very new to hmm. i actually interviewed a lady who had a facial difference born with a facial difference on my show which i'll put a card in for those that are watching um, where she actually became an educator for 25 years and now is the author of multiple books around embracing difference where she makes people the hero of their own story, but they're all different. Yes. There's all something about them that, that that they feel that they're different and they're made to feel different, but they end up being the saviours. They save the cat moments of you know, um, who they actually are, so they find an identity around yeah. their difference. And I think that... It, the, and that, the name of that one is called uh, Embracing Difference. And she makes some amazing statements. Uh, and, and, and having lived that journey from the day she was born, she said she was bullied because her parents were told that she shouldn't be taken out into the world. So to be to have her parents told that, she said, that's the very first day I was bullied. And she said school every day she was bullied. So obviously she's an advocate for anti-bullying. But the thing is I can see how the puppetry and puppets can become so important in those narratives. I never considered what you just said there around difference, that these puppets are all different, and they are, in a sense, they all have their own character and personality, 
in their Certainly. own story, but they a lot of them are monsters, and and a lot of difference is seen as as what people perceive as an ugly side, which actually isn't necessarily who that monster represents. Like you think yeah. of Elmo, you think of Agro, you think they've all got nice per- yeah yeah exactly there's something in their makeup that makes them likable even though they're sometimes rogues or different yeah that's it i think also what puppetry is i've noticed is that you know i'm someone who also comes from a background where i was never accepted for who i was for a very long time and so what you get in puppetry is a merry band of puppeteers who are those fringe people who then come together and find themselves as a community in this art form. Mm -hmm. I feel like puppetry as well. Yeah. In terms of uh, celebrating difference, I I had an interview recently with a puppeteer called Drew Wilson and his whole shtick was about that same thing, that idea of finding heroism in your own self and in puppetry and just allowing yourself to you do you like, yeah, like that's, that's what it's all about. If you can do you and you can celebrate yourself and create truth on stage that is just as valid as creating something that's completely not you on stage. But I also think that in, in what we're going through with the Black Rights Matter campaign, there is a really great toolkit here in what we have in puppetry to teach acceptance and, you know, and, and shun normal ideas of normal um, and embrace everyone's individual selves. Yeah. It's um it's really good to to think that you're doing that and that sort of work and recognizing it um that it's not just puppetry. So I, I guess part of the the passion there is it comes down to what I see with a lot of people with a passion is ultimately they're there to help others or inspire others. So how do you how do you feel the journey for you learning from all these pup puppeteers and their passion? How do you feel that you pass and doing your podcast helps pass that same passion on to potentially future puppeteers? Wow, that's a really deep question. I haven't really considered what it would do in terms of other people. I know that it's reaching international audiences, and I think what I want it to be is a bit of, a, a bit of an airway for, for international audiences to see that puppetry, even though we don't have an educational uh, grounding in puppetry here, even though we don't necessarily have as many big puppet theatres or conferences, that it still very much exists and is an art form. I often ask the question to every single guest I have, why puppets? And I think a lot of the similarities there is that we find that puppets are magic and puppets allow us to embody all these things that we've talked about today. The other question is what advice puppet this puppeteer has for young puppeteers and performers. And that really is, in a lot of the ways, it's a selfish question. I ask it for me, I ask it because this is definitely the beginning of a journey for me. But what I find often is that it's quite validating to see that what I am doing at the moment is is working out for me. As far as other puppeteers go, all I know is the most consistent piece of advice I've received is just do it, just do it and just try it. And, you know, you don't even need to have the puppet, you can have object theatre. I was asked recently to do Romeo and Juliet, the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet using a drink bottle and a uh, something, uh, a pair of headphones. And so this is Juliet and this is Romeo. And I'm just animating these two objects. Romeo, Romeo, where for out there, Romeo? Oh, what's on the light is window breaks. You know, you have so much around you as objects that you can create and animate and just have fun with. And I think just the allowance of separating, I think what it really is, is about separating the performance anxiety. So if you're allowing yourself to, to put your performance and, and embody it in something that's not you takes away that focus off you. You're able to play and have fun. And I think what we need to do is coax people back into performance and into these other fringe art forms by virtue of this great thing. We live in a very anxious generation. We live in a very anxious time. Um, and I feel like this is a way that we can access feelings, thoughts, emotions, stories, narratives that are really dark for us, but also bring light to them. So I think, that's the best, the best advice I've had is just you do you, have a go and tell the story that you find truthful. Have you considered or seen where puppetry perhaps is used with people who stutter? Because I know that when they do singing, with pe- when they ask people who stutter to potentially sing, they lose their stutter um, and it's around breathing. So, um, yeah. but, but a lot of it's around anxiety and, and things like that as well. But have you seen any like you puppetry used as potential therapy for people who stutter or considered that as but perhaps something to look into? 
I haven't seen it in puppetry. I have seen it in improv. Um, I have actually worked with students in improvisation who just need that 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 little guy in our, that we all have in our heads that's telling us we're doing it wrong, just to turn him off. Uh, and I feel like what you've just mentioned with puppetry in terms of what we could do with improv and puppetry is really brilliant because I definitely see that as a, a way forward. I know that puppetry can be therapeutic in so many ways and it is used in therapy, you know, in various cases. I don't really want to go into that because I don't yeah. have enough knowledge myself uh, to be able to comment on it. I definitely see the potential of it and I think if it can be used to allow communication from students who may have autism spectrum disorder or um, other other uh, intellectual disabilities, uh, I definitely think that it can be used as a way of turning off whatever that brings on that stutter. I don't see why that's not possible. No worries. Is there anything you'd like to say to anyone who's considering puppetry? And um, do you want to tell them a little bit about what you're actually doing? You sort of alluded to it, but what uh, the what is it orange one orange sock yeah one orange sock yes uh so what i would love to say is if you are if you are an australian and or anyone who's considering puppetry the best thing you can do is reach out and and connect with your other puppeteers because i feel like because it is considered a fringe sort of thing that there's this expectation that you have to do it alone you do not have to do puppetry alone and puppetry is about collaboration one orange sock is an independent design studio creation studio um for myself as a puppeteer and performer and what i'm trying to do is develop projects and develop uh opportunities for puppetry to re-enter uh theatrical performance break its way into podcasting and break its way into other channels like youtube and project by project my my ambition is to make sure that puppetry in all its forms not just puppetry which i've started in is able to be seen as a healthy valid profession and art form but also that student, uh, not students, but also that it is a way in which we can tell stories that embrace difference, that embrace um, otherness and actually use those as strengths. So One Orange Sock is my personal, um, my personal brand of sorts. I started this business only in January of this year. So it's very, very new. I'm so excited that I now have a, a central point, a location for which people can see me and see my puppetry. And I think there's a lot to be. There's a whole other discussion about personal branding and performance branding and and puppetry in that regard. But uh, if you if you are if you are loving the podcast, if you've listened to the podcast and you like it more, then there's more coming. Uh, the next show will probably be out by September, and hopefully from that we'll have a series happening on YouTube as well. So it is growing, and I'm so excited to see where it goes. And you're focused on the Australian. Um, puppet industry at the moment but when I connected with you and I shared you the video I did with uh, Landon Harvey who was the ventriloquist yeah. um, you said I'll look at it later but I'm keen to do international puppetry but right, not, not right now my series right. on my podcast will be focused on Australia but I do want to branch out so you, you said you alluded that you had a international audience interestingly I was intrigued to find out how big puppetry and venting was actually in the u.s it's obviously it's yeah it's it's quite intriguing and, and he's he's making puppets for others and selling them at shows now vent yes. puppets so they, there's a bit more maneuver well, not maneuverability um they're designed differently with you you you're saying yours are more cute the cuteness and the identification of cuteness is important whereas these guys with the venting tend to go to some serious extremes in in the way they're creating their puppets um, with a lot yeah. more features and characteristics, I think, to create their characters. And maybe that's a misconception, but certainly the ones I've seen certainly look like that. Yeah, venting, if you ever look up a lady named Nina Conti, she's British and she's an amazing comedian and she takes vent to the next level. She does vent in which she puts a mask on an audience member's face and just uses a little pump trigger to make the, the mask move for the character. Vent puppetry is is virtually this, but it's just the, the, the change of the mask. The puppets are designed so that they sit on a platform and that the legs of the puppet are generally visible, whereas a Muppet-style puppet is generally legless. You you know, that's where the hand goes. So in terms of... And then the characterization, yeah, it's a, it comes... Its basis is in vaudeville. So that 1940s dummy-style performance is generally very cheeky, tongue-in-cheek, 
and it is it is uh, a more adult form of performance. And what's amazing about that guy is that he's so young. I cannot believe how young he is um, that you've mentioned. Um, so, yeah, I feel like there is a difference between the two. It is a very much a, a 10,000 hour skill. Like if you haven't done it for 10,000 hours in terms of practice, it, it's hard to get. In terms of um, the podcast, season one is going to be 24 episodes. I hope to have that finished uh, by September so that I can move on to my next project. And there is an opportunity for me, uh, there's a, a pending scholarship for me to go to Budapest and study my Masters of Puppetry. And when I'm there, I'd really love to uh, create Talking Sock International and, and open it up to a, a European, American, Canadian world audience. And the reason that is, is because once I have an audience in Australia and we've projected out to the world what Australia can do, it, communication goes two ways. I have to have voices from um, the other other parts of the world come back and tell Australian audiences what puppetry is out there for them. So yeah, season two is definitely Talking Flock International. I definitely want to have big acts like Ronnie Burkett, uh, Natasha Belova, and uh, and you know your friend that you mentioned, Len. I think it would just be great to have those voices come back to Australia. That's awesome. I really appreciate your time today and sharing your passion for puppetry. And uh, I'm sure we'll see and hear more of you uh, in the Australian landscape and obviously in the international landscape as well. And hopefully you've inspired some teachers to think differently and some uh, potentially young future puppeteers to take it up as a potential passion and uh, might give them some purpose if they're looking for something different that where you say they might struggle to do acting or be in front of people but it might open up some avenues for them to actually you know express themselves in ways that they hadn't previously considered yeah please get in touch with me if you are a teacher looking to put puppetry in your classroom uh, you can talk to me at hello at oneorangesock.com or just message me through my website www.oneorangesock.com as an educator i don't even touch on COVID isolation and how puppetry became this huge thing during teaching online so please get in touch i'd love to hear more from people about that thank you for having me that's awesome thanks pete really appreciate it and down the track i'll like to connect again and see where everything's at so um, take care with that and good luck with your podcast thank you i look forward to it see you later i hope you liked this episode if you did please give it a thumbs up and feel free to comment if you haven't yet subscribed hit the subscribe button and the notification bell to be advised of new interviews when they're uploaded I hope you join us again sometime. Catch you later.